We're in Mark chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21, and the title of today's uh, sermon is Behold My Servant. Behold My Servant. And we're actually, before we get into Mark, we're going to start for our introduction way back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13. Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13. And um, you guys have seen, you can kind of see on the screen there, the right there. That's the, the logo that we've had as we've kind of been studying the book of Mark. I like to make up a little um, graphic design logo for each book that we study. And this one, I chose this cool looking uh, ox. And the reason I chose that is because the ox represents the servant uh, animal. And th- in this book of Mark, Jesus is seen as the servant. Well, we're going back now to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to see God talking about his servant. And when I say Jesus is the servant, he he is serving us, so that's definitely true, but he's serving us because he is God's ultimate servant. And that's how, that's where we're going to begin. So let's go ahead and pray to get our time started in the Word of God. Father, we need, above all, your Spirit to reveal to us what these words mean, because we can't understand them in our own flesh. Just with our mind, Lord, we cannot fathom what you have done for us or what your heart is. But God, you have created a way where we can feel and know and experience you and your love. And that is called the Holy Spirit. And you respond to those who have a heart to hear you. You you don't uh, force yourself on anyone who has a hard heart and, and rejects you and doesn't want to know you. For them, this is going to be... Um, sad and boring. But Lord, if we would have a tender heart and if we would have a soft heart, you promise that you will meet with us and you will guide us and you will speak things to us that we would never have known before and you will show us things that were impossible for us to see before. And God, we pray for that. We ask that you would show us your glory, just as uh, Jared sang as we spent time worshiping you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 says, Behold my servant. So God is is speaking. He's giving Isaiah a prophecy. And he's telling everybody, everybody, stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. And look, stare at my servant. And of course, he's talking about Jesus, even though this was written more than a thousand years before Jesus was even born. This is specifically talking about the Messiah, Jesus. He says, behold, my servant shall deal, shall deal prudently. That means he will, he will do what's wise. He will, he, will, he will do what God would do. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Okay, so we get that part. We imagine, you know, God's son coming to the world to save the world. And we're like, okay. And, and as the Jews read this, they see that first. And they're like, wow, Jesus, when Jesus comes, when, when the Messiah comes, he is going to be awesome. He's going to be mighty. And he's going to throw down whatever enemies we have. And he's going to speak a word and his enemies will die. He's just strong, right? He will be exalted and extolled and very high. But here's the issue. That's not his first coming. That's his second coming, which we may get to experience very soon in this world. We have that hope. We know that someday Jesus will come back and it will be like that. He's not going to come back as a weak 
baby in a manger the next time. He's going to come as the conquering king, and everyone will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. But look what it says. So he says he will be exalted and extolled. That's his second coming. But then he says, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage or his face was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And that is a prophecy of his first coming. So in this prophecy, we see both comings of Jesus. And this is hap- this happened a lot in the Old Testament, where God kind of squishes together his first coming and his second coming and talks about them both at the same time. <clears throat> it's almost like if you were looking up a mountain, and let's say you're standing here, right here, and you're looking up a mountain, you may see some points along that mountain, like one point being his first coming and another point being his second coming, but you may not be able to tell how far apart these two points are if you're looking from this perspective over here. And you may not see the dips and valleys that are between those two high points. And that's how Isaiah is prophesying right now. He can't see the difference between the first and the second coming, but there is. And look what it says. It says his visage, his face will be marred more than any man. Jesus' face would be wrecked more than any human being has ever been wrecked, ever. That's what it says. Secondly, it says his form, that means his entire body, more than the sons of men. That means he is going to be beat and um, hurt and violated more than any human being has ever been hurt or beaten, or bled, or um, tortured. This is Jesus and what he's gone through. This is the claim of God, that what Jesus is going through is worse than what any human being could ever or will ever go through. And then the last little phrase in this verse, it says, so his form will be marred more than any son of man. And then it says, so he shall sprinkle many nations. And that word sprinkle is very important because the Bible uses that word when it's talking about how the high priest would dip uh, 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 hyssop, a plant, uh, in blood, always in blood, and would sprinkle the blood on uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the high place. Or he would sprinkle sinners. He would get blood on them and it would symbolize... God forgiving their sin, taking the blood of something innocent and sacrificing it for someone that was guilty. And of course, this is speaking directly about the blood that Jesus would sprinkle, and over who? Over many nations. This shows that God's intention was not just to save the Jewish people, but was to save the entire world, that he has chosen many people from many nations, you and me, we were born here in this nation. <clears throat> this is not Israel. This is not God's chosen people and God's chosen nation. This is America. We came along way later, you know. And uh, this is how God's heart is is showed to us. He will come as a conqueror, but first he has to come as a suffering servant. He has to be tortured, and it says here, he will, his face and his body will be marred more than any man. And in this, through this sacrifice, he will sprinkle the nations, meaning he will forgive their sins. 
So all of that is a prophecy that was 1400 years before Jesus came. <clears throat> but what we're going to study today is the suffering that Jesus is going to go through in the time that is really <clears throat> kind of difficult, <coughs> excuse me, for us to look at. <clears throat> this uh, study today may be kind of difficult because it talks about the physical things that Jesus goes through for us. So, um, so Jesus was this suffering servant and God tells us, behold, my servant. I want you to behold him. Behold doesn't mean just, just look at. Behold means focus your attention on him. Don't let anything distract you from him. And this is why we have to spend time with Jesus in the morning. We have to open the word and spend time with him because God says, the more you look at him, the more you set your heart and your mind and your even your emotions on him, the more of a connection you will have. I will be building your faith and you will be, you will be transformed into a more humble person as you see what Jesus himself would do for you. So it is difficult for us today to look at what we're going to look at, at, at the suffering that Jesus knew he was going to do. He, he read that prophecy in Isaiah. He knew this was coming, and it's difficult for us to look at it. It's, it's emotional even. And I know many of you have seen the Passion of the Christ and the scene where Jesus is whipped and, and flogged uh, is one of the most difficult things to, to watch ever. I don't know if I've ever, it always makes me cry. It always is, is brutal to watch. Just not even just that it is Jesus, but that it, that, that was done to any human being just makes us, um, weep. It may, it creates a strong emotional reaction and that's okay. God, um, God loves you. He loves you emotionally. And this that we're going to learn about today is proof of the depths and the extent of God's love for you. So we're going to look at at God's servant. And if Jesus is our Lord, but he's also a servant for us, real quick, what do we think we should be? Also servants. Husbands, be serving your wives, be serving your kids. Um, every part of our church, we need to serve each other and consider other others as more important than ourselves at all points. Give up our life to serve those around us. And that's, uh, so it's another thing to keep in mind as we look at what Jesus is doing here. So beginning in Mark chapter 15, verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. We talked about that last week. And he delivered Jesus. And after he had scourged him to be crucified. Mark doesn't describe the scourging of Jesus for us. This was a common sight in the Roman Empire, so it didn't really need to be described to his audience. But we live 2,000 years later, and we need to go back into history to discover the horror of what scourging was. It's pretty intense, so get ready. This is the worst that man can do. This, uh, along with crucifixion, was designed to create and inflict the most amount of pain possible while keeping the person alive so that they could experience pain, more pain. Jesus, 
he must go through this because he has to face our worst as men. We have to inflict our worst punishment on him before he can even start God's punishment. You see, when he gets to the cross finally and it gets dark, God will be inflicting him with a divine punishment, pouring out on Jesus all of his wrath that will add on to everything that that man, which we're going to read about today, is doing to him. Why does Jesus need to do this? Well, it's very simple. We deserve it, so Jesus is taking it for us. We got to keep that in our minds. This is your story, but he is the substitute for you. So what happens is they would tie the prisoner who's being scourged, they would tie him up to a post with their arms extended and stretched out over the post. So I'm going to show you that is a picture of the post that the type of post, and it may have been shorter than that, but that's a picture of the type of post that they would stretch out their arms over. And the prisoner would be stripped of their clothes, stripped naked. And uh, Jewish law actually limited the number of, of times someone could be whipped at 39. But the Romans probably didn't follow that rule. In fact, they had no limit. Uh, so this whipping and beating could go on for a very long time. So one or actually many soldiers would take turns beating the, the prisoner with what's called a flagrum or a flagrum, or there's another name for it, a cat of nine tails. So as we study this, that is uh, a couple renditions of what this cat of nine tails would look like. Um, as you can see, they would have, uh, they would have, there, they would have little balls of lead and when those would hit, they, they would have all kinds of things tied onto it, balls of lead, pieces of glass, pieces of bone or sharp rock or even metal. Uh, they would tie them into the different thing. And as they would beat the prisoner, the lead balls would create deep bruises. And then the sharper parts, as they would pull them away, would uh, cut the skin and the flesh and the muscle and then cause those bruises to uh, bleed. So um, it would bruise and bleed terribly. And uh, it would commonly, you'd be able to see bone, you know, through the, because the flesh would just be so destroyed. And so, uh, you know, the flesh would just be turned to ribbons, basically. And I, I want you to think that this is from, you know, the base of the head all the way down to the ankles. Every part of the body, they would they would make sure was whipped and, and destroyed like this. Um, the skin would be unrecognizable as skin. It would just look like a mass of twisted stuff. And, and this is showing us what the Bible means when it gave us the prophecy that his face and his body would be marred more than any human being. He experienced this pain. And, and it's, speaking of pain, this would be a 10 out of 10. You know, when you go to the doctor and you tell them you are, you're an 8 of 10 or 9 of 10, this is truly a 10 of 10 when it comes to pain. 
And these uh, soldiers would only stop when they believed that their prisoner was near death. Uh, many prisoners would actually just die from these wounds and the pain and the blood loss. And I think just to pause and think that there's no way that we can carefully consider what is going on right here and come to the conclusion that Jesus doesn't love you and he doesn't care about you. No, he loves you. He was thinking about you. He endured all of this for you. And I never want you to let anything or anyone minimize what Jesus Christ has done and has sacrificed and has paid to prove that he loves you. There's been times in my life where I didn't get that, where I took for granted what Jesus had done for me, has done for me. And I grew calloused and, and I started to treat Jesus as just either my cosmic Santa Claus, which would give me whatever I wanted, or I just tried to ignore him. Neither are good reactions, responses to what Jesus has done. We need to behold God's servant. Let it affect us. Let it tear us apart. Him being torn apart, let it tear us apart. And, um, and know that it's because of his love for you that he allowed all of this to happen. Well, the soldiers now are introduced. We're introduced to these guys in the story. And these soldiers are a lot like me in the past where I... I don't know if I have gone as far as mocking Jesus, but I certainly have not understood why he's done what he's done or why he's doing what he's doing. And um, these soldiers right now that we're going to look at, they mock Jesus, partly because they don't understand who he is. Uh, and, and this shows us what mankind does to Jesus when they reject him is that they eventually get, get around to mocking him, misunderstanding what he's doing. And it says here in our text in Matthew 15, the soldiers led him away into a hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. So this is hundreds and hundreds of soldiers, maybe even 600 to 1,500 soldiers, all gathered together in this big square in Romans, uh, in, in Pilate's residence there. And after they do their duty to punish him with the scourging, uh, now the Romans can have their fun, okay? Everything they do here is to mock Jesus and the claims of Jesus to be the Son of God and the King of the world and the Savior of the world. And so it says, and they clothed him with purple, they clothed him with purple. So what we know is that royalty would wear purple. Kings and queens. You know, here's a, here's a picture of a uh, king of some sort. I don't know who it's supposed to represent, but some Roman king, uh, maybe a Caesar, and they would commonly wear purple. 
So these soldiers, they find a purple cloth and they throw it around Jesus's back. Now, remember what just happened to Jesus's back. He was just tortured and flogged and scourged. And so what this would do, you know, they would put it right on his back, probably, you know, patting his back and, and his back had just been freshly injured. And but they do this because everything right now is a big joke to them. And, and really gets down to this. How can a man who we can destroy, we can torture, we can kill him. How can this man have any power at all to do the things that he says? He says he's the king of the Jews, the Messiah. He says he's God. How can he do that if we can kill him? They're, the base of their th- philosophy is that power comes from physical might. Might makes right, you could say. And they would say, we as Rome, we are mighty. We are the strongest empire that has ever existed in this world. We rule the world. Everyone must do what we say. So that's the definition of power to these Romans. We force our will on our enemies. And so Jesus is a joke to them. Because Jesus, at this point in time, is not forcing his will on his enemies. He's appealing to his enemies with love. He's telling his enemies, I love you and I don't want you to be my enemy. Now, when Jesus comes the second time, Isaiah 53 said, it will be very different and his enemies will bow and his enemies will be destroyed. But at this point in time, God shows His love is much greater than his desire to punish us. He wants to accept us. He wants to forgive us. And we have a choice. Are we going to accept his love and forgiveness? Or are we going to wait for him to come back the second time and face his wrath? These Romans don't get it. And so they put the purple robe on him. Now check it out. We have, uh, look at that. There's, There's the Queen of England wearing purple. You know, so there's another example of royalty wearing purple. And maybe I can find a, yeah, there we go. There's Prince. He's royalty, Prince, obviously. And he had a big thing with the color purple. Um, So there's a couple jokes for you. He did die. That's true. All right. So our text continues. After they put the purple robe on him, it says they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute, salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Right? Okay. So, what this is, this is a mockery of the, the idea of a crown. Okay, so here we see the Romans would, would, would uh, commonly have a crown made of a plant, a wreath of some sort, fresh, you know, and, and it, it was a symbol of, again, royalty. And so their mockery continues by putting a crown on his head. But this crown that they put on his head is the opposite of honor. It's a crown of pain and suffering. So in Israel, this is a picture of the what they made this crown out of. This is a certain plant that grows there in Israel. Let me, let me put it on the big screen for you guys. And I want you to notice, can you see how incredibly long and sharp 
and even strong those thorns are. It's unbelievable how long these are. So, what they did is they would fashion it into a crown of thorns somewhat like this, as you can see. Let me put that on the big screen for you guys too. Look at that. Those thorns are incredibly sharp and would go deep into the skull. And so they put this on his head. The thorns would lacerate the scalp. Uh, the scalp obviously is one of the most sensitive to bleeding parts of the whole body. Uh, it's very uh, got lots of veins and lots of blood flow. And so the blood would have just flowed down his face and just covered his whole body with blood. And then his scalp would start to swell from these injuries. And this is one of those things you don't commonly see talked about. But as the body tries to stop the loss of blood and deal with the injuries that it's experiencing, the head is one of the parts of the body that swells really quickly, and it swells tremendously. And with this type of injuries, uh, the head would, would swell, would grow dramatically in size. So they stuffed this thing on there, and then the head would swell, and, and, and they say that it could get up to three times the normal size of a head. And I want you to go back to our prophecy in Isaiah where it says his visage, his whole appearance was marred more than any man. As they stuffed it on there, this, this swelling made him unrecognizable even as a human being. He was just a, a fleshly thing that was obviously suffering. And as, as his head would swell, it would actually keep this crown of thorns. It would get stuck, and, and because of the swelling, you probably couldn't get it off. <laughs> I, got a, uh, I got a splinter this week in my hand, and it was, it was about one millimeter in size, but it was right between my thumb and my um, finger right here, right there, and I thought I was going to die. Uh, such a baby, and uh, it took, uh, you know, it took my wife helping me get it out, and man, I can't imagine having thorns this long, you know, in my head that I cannot get out in the type of pain and suffering that Jesus is going through. Now, you got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis to, to really understand what's going on here. Where did thorns come from? The answer to that question is Adam. When Adam sinned and Adam rebelled against God, when Adam joined forces with Satan in, in rebelling against God, God said the punishment would be death, but in the physical world there would, be, there would be alterations to the physical world as well. One of those was thorns. Thorns would come. And it's just absolutely incredible that Jesus is crowned with these thorns that were a result of Adam's sin. And this, this shows exactly what's going on here. All of Adam's sin and Adam's racist sin, which would be all of human sin, is being laid on Jesus. And it's hurting him. He's suffering for it. And Jesus is taking it all upon himself. The sin 
the thorns that Adam bought, Jesus is paying for. Jesus is taking care of it. Now the the soldiers aren't done yet. It says, then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him with mock worship. Isaiah says we are to behold God's servant. Behold how he was marred more than any man. You know, beating his head where the thorns were just placed on his head, where his head is now swelling and has so much pain, they are beating him now with a reed and spitting on him. They would only drive the thorns in and cause more pain. And they spat on him to show their disgust, their hatred. They added insult to injury. So not only do they want to hurt him as much as possible, but they want him to know that they think he's a wuss. They think he is weak. And nothing could be further from the truth. He said, I could call down millions of angels and they could annihilate everyone in a second. But he is choosing because he is strong, because he is the strongest. He is choosing to endure this pain that must be endured for us. And they don't understand. And yet, what does Jesus say when he finally gets to the cross? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's how Jesus loves. How many days have you gone through your day basically mocking Jesus, ignoring him, not acknowledging his glory and his place as God? And yet Jesus says, I'm still here. I love you. I'm not going anywhere. They add insult to his injuries. And then they finally are done here. They say, when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and let him out to crucify him. Now, I got to explain to you medically what would happen here. As they put that robe on Jesus's freshly injured back, and then they spent some time mocking him. As they tired of their entertainment, they would rip that cloak off his back, but not before that cloak had started to soak in the blood, and the blood would have started to coagulate and affix itself to his back, getting basically the beginnings of a scab, scabbing that robe to his back. So as they ripped this cloak off his back, they are re-injuring everything that he just had done to him. Opening up new wounds on his back. And on this freshly injured back again, they would take a 70 to 100 pound crossbar and they would put it on his shoulders and they would tie his arms out at a 90-degree angle, to carry this crossbar to the place where they would kill him. Verse 21. Then they compelled or forced a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. So 
so Jesus was so weak and beaten, you know, from the beatings and the mock torture um, of the soldiers that Jesus could not carry his cross alone. So, you know, they either took the cross off him and put it on Simon or Simon had to get up under Jesus's, you know, armpits here and carry Jesus with the cross. So they, they forced this guy, Simon, to do it. So who is this guy, Simon, from Cyrene, Cyrene? Well, as you can see on this map, Cyrene is part of Africa. Today we call this Libya. And Cyrene is right there on the um, tip of this little part here. And uh, Simon was a Jew. He was in town, in Jerusalem. He had journeyed there for this Passover celebration. Remember, the Jews were supposed to journey wherever they lived in the world. They were supposed to come back, you know, for the Passover celebration. And so he was a Jew that lived in Africa. And now there was lots of Jews that lived in lots of places around the world. They developed little communities in these places. So we don't know if he was a natural-born Jew, that means ethnically a Jew, or whether he was called a proselyte. A proselyte is someone who became a Jew. They weren't born a Jew, but they they believed that, that um, the Jews held the promises of God, and, and they, they wanted to join that community. And God's word in the Old Testament made provision for anyone who wanted to become a Jew. They could become a Jew by becoming circumcised and doing certain things. They would become a Jew. So, we don't know. Now, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, not debates, but there's people who uh, view Simon as either, they, they paint pictures of him and stuff, and they either paint him as a, a white guy or a, or a Middle Eastern type guy, or as a black guy being from Africa and a proselyte. And the truth is, we have no idea, and I think it's great that everyone kind of has their own opinion. But this is Simon. But what we do know about him is that he came to Jerusalem to um, to offer his lamb to God for the Passover celebration. Remember, at the Passover, they would buy a lamb and they would sacrifice it at the temple. And the blood of that lamb would provide forgiveness for them for that year. And so this guy is a faithful guy, wants to have his sins forgiven, so he goes to Jerusalem. But the crazy thing is, is he came to Jerusalem to offer his lamb, but instead he met the real lamb of God in a very powerful, bloody way. You know, he probably got the blood of Jesus all over him, sprinkled on him. And it's just crazy that... Um, that he would meet the Lamb of God in this way. And we know pretty firmly that this had a huge impact on Simon for the rest of his life. Uh, we see right here that Mark references Alexander and Rufus, which he is assuming that everyone who's reading this, the people in the church, they would know who these guys are. Why? Because his sons apparently became leaders in the church and maybe even Simon himself became a leader in the church, but his kids for sure were a part of the church. And in the in the um, letter to the Romans, there's a reference to his wife uh, being a major part of, of what's going on in Rome, in the Christian community there in Rome, and Rufus also, again, being mentioned in the book of Romans. 
So what I see here, what I think happened is they all got saved from this experience. They all found Jesus and found salvation. Why? Because Jesus found them. It was no coincidence that Simon just happened to be walking by. No. And nothing in your life is a coincidence either. Everything in your life, just like everything in Simon's life, is leading up to this moment, this point, where you will meet Jesus. And after you meet Jesus, the rest of your life is staying near to Jesus. Or maybe even you could say picking up your cross and following Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him pick up his cross daily and follow me. They found Jesus, this family did, because Jesus found them Again, in a sense, this is where we all need to meet Jesus. We need to meet first the bloody Lamb of God suffering for our sins. That's the first thing you need to know in the first place you need to meet Jesus. There is no other place you can meet him. Going to church, no, that's not where you really meet him. You have to meet him at the cross. You have to see his blood. You have to believe his blood is for you. And that's where we meet him. And then, just like Simon of Cyrene, we pick up a cross and follow him. That describes the life of every believer from Simon until now. We pick up our cross and follow Christ after we realize what his sacrifice and his suffering means for us. We pick up our cross and say, my life belongs to you. I'm not worried about where I was going before. I'm not worried about my dinner plans. I'm not worried about my plans and what I have going on. My life is yours, 100% yours, because nobody loves me like you. Nobody could ever do what you've done for me. Nobody could bleed like you bled for me. It's you, Jesus. So my life is to serve you and to follow you. So that's our text today in, in the book of Mark talking about the suffering of Jesus. Now I need to explain one other part. We're going to close by going all the way back to the book of Genesis and talking about another figure, and this is Abraham and Isaac. In chapter 22 of Genesis, it says this, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. Now let me set the stage for you. Abraham had been called by God to go to his promised land. Abraham had been there, and and now God called him to make a sacrifice. And the sacrifice, he said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, your beloved son. I want you to go up on a mountain that I'm going to show you, and I want you to kill him for me. So Abraham trusted God at this point in his life, and he said, okay, I'll do that. Now, Abraham was armed with some promises of God that God would uh, use Isaac and the descendants of Isaac to save the world. So Abraham had some promises that he could believe in. And so by faith, Abraham said, well, I'm going to kill Isaac. And what's going to happen probably is God is going to raise Isaac from the dead because he's made promises about Isaac and Isaac is not married yet. So he needs to have some kids to fulfill God's promise. So if God's promised those things, then I can do what he asks me today because God's promises will come true. That's what faith is. So Abraham took the wood of the bur- and the burnt offering and laid it on his, 
uh, Isaac, his son. Now, what we just studied about the cross being laid on Jesus' shoulders, I believe, is a fulfillment of what is happening here with Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. The cross was the fulfillment of this. The wood of the sacrifice being laid on the back of the sun. It's too perfect. And I want you to see that the father, Abraham, Abraham represents the father here. He is the source of this work of love that Jesus is completing. The heavenly father has asked Jesus, will you be the sacrifice? And Jesus said, yes, I will be the sacrifice. So the father is the one who lays the wood of the sacrifice on his own beloved son. How can we sit there and say, God does not love us? Or how can we be so hard-hearted and callous to say, I, well, God may love me, but I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do anyway. Then Abraham took fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together, showing the united purpose of both of them, father and son, going to do the will of God. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son. Look at what Abraham says here, because it's so powerful. He says, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And then they came to the place of which God had told him. We know what this place is. It's called Mount Moriah. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, who we know is Jesus, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of this place, check this out, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And, it, and excuse me, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now there is a crazy truth. Here is a map of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. What we see here is this highest point on Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham sacrificed his son, was on the highest point of Mount Moriah there, is a place called Calvary, which is another name, for, uh, another name is called Golgotha, which is called Place of the Skull. So here's the, the city of Jerusalem, and you can see that little arrow where it's um, called Golgotha, Okay. Oops, hang on. Sorry. I'm trying to change the view here. 
Alright, so there is the side of the rock face where this um, formation in the rocks looks like a skull. Okay, we know exactly where this is, right outside the gates of Jerusalem. I've been there. Now, someone kind of darkened the images here to make it look better. I'm going to show you exactly what it looks like today. That is a bus station in Jerusalem that is built right on the, right at the place of the skull. So right here is the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. This is the place of the skull. And Jesus was either crucified on top on this hill up here or on the flat part right below it. And they would hang the sign in one of these uh, these rock little parts here. And the, and the people would have been crucified right there on the bottom. And what I'm saying here is that Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac or was going to. And God led him to this exact place where 2,500 years later, his, his own son, Jesus, would be the fulfillment of that sacrifice. So Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. God said, I know that you fear me and love me. And that my response to that is that I'm going to sacrifice my son for to take the place of your son. Someone needs to be sacrificed. Your sins are too great. They, you cannot come to heaven as a sinner. Someone has to die. And because I love you, I'll be the one that dies, Jesus would say. And it was at the same I mean, Jesus, is, God is not even like playing games with us. It's the same mountain. It's the same place. Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac and the, the eventual crucifixion of Jesus happen at the exact same place. Golgotha or Calvary, the place that looks like a skull. Now, what Abraham said right there at the very end, he said, this is called, this place was called now, the Lord will provide. That was the name before it was called the place of the skull. The Lord will provide. How did the Lord provide? Through the death of his son. The Lord provides everything that we need. And what we need most is to be born again. And today and every day we have an opportunity to live a new life by saying, Jesus, I accept what you have done for me. And I will pick up my cross and follow you. I need your death to be the substitute for my punishment. And Jesus will do it for you. But you have to do it. You cannot just say, well, my parents are saved or I've gone to church lots of times. None of that ever works. It has to be your decision. And if you're feeling right now, maybe I should make that decision. Just know you didn't come with the, up with that idea. God did. God put it in your heart to even consider what his son has done. And as we read at the beginning, Isaiah says, behold the servant. And we spent a lot of time today beholding the servant of God, Jesus Christ, and what he has suffered for us to show us his love and to show us what he endured for us so that he could sprinkle many nations. Whoever hears the sound of my voice today, you can be born again. You can call upon this Jesus and you will be forgiven of all sin and you will be born again and have new desires and it will be your delight to honor God and to serve God and to follow God. 
you will want to pick up your cross and follow him. That's what Jesus offers. That's what Jesus does. And I ask every one of you, consider him. Behold him. Don't forget. Don't let the world numb you through all the things that it has to offer. But keep your mind focused on the Lord. And I need to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.